I'm going to jump in. I want to talk. I, there's. I want to talk today about this this uh, quote from Jim Elliot. If you don't know who Jim Elliot is, he, he's um he's a, a missionary that um, went to Ecuador, and uh, with a, with a, a few of the guys, they were trying to do ministry to a, re, a remote village in uh, in Ecuador. People, a completely unreached people group. And when they they got on the ground and they were trying to like build trust with this uh, this this village the, these people and they this was after a long process. If you watch the movie Into the Spear, um, it's about Jim Elliot and those guys. Um, and they end up getting they end up getting attacked and killed by this these villagers in this remote village who they're trying to do ministry with. And kind of the culmination of um, at least in the the cinematic like in the movie. Is um, you know they they have this they have this gun in the um, inside of the plane that they landed with, and they're getting attacked by spears. They're getting killed by spears, and um, one of them actually runs to the plane and grabs the gun, and then instead of instead of shooting the villagers, they aim up and just shoot in the sky while they're being killed, as a demonstrate like last ditch demonstration of like love and nonviolence. That like we actually had the capability to fight back, and we want you to see that we had the capability to fight back, and we actively chose not to, as you're killing us. And it, eventually, it's their wives, the wives of the men who who went to do that mission, who actually do this like very long-term uh, ministry in that village. Um, and a and a turning point was kind of around how that how that happened. And afterward, you know, the the writings of Jim Elliot. Um, the life of Jim Elliot became, you know, a, a very uh, exemplary legacy of ministry. And in his diary, he has this line, and I want it to just be like the, the, the maybe, I don't know, title, but just like the idea of of our time together this morning. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. She is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. Paul receives multiple, as we discussed, multiple negative prophetic words, warnings, cautionary prophetic words by the Spirit uh, uh, through the Lord, through the, through prophetic people, through community. They urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, through the Spirit, they 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 told him that the Jewish leaders were going to arrest the owner of this belt and and. Uh, um, all this kind of messaging. And as we discussed a little bit in, in community here, I can't remember the last time I received a prophetic word from someone that was forewarning me of future suffering, which I must also continue to engage in. <clears throat> we typically, give, we typically uh, 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 pray for, ask for, listen for, and give uh, um, prophetic words in maybe two categories. One would be encouraging of uh, encouraging of the current time or encouraging of the future, uh, um, uh, speaking to your value, your worth, what God is doing in you, or speaking to what he is going to do with you or your family, your friends, your loved ones, your calling in the future, your gifting, your, your leadership, the, 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 your influence, uh, uh, stuff like that, or we might listen for, receive, ask for, or give a prophetic word of, of challenge, uh, more of a negative word, but challenge in a way that ch you better change course or you're going to die. You better cha change course or this is not going to go well. And I've received plenty of both. I've, I've received a whole lot of both. 
um, both asked, you know, asked for God, listened for God, do like, and and received from Him, or in community receiving prophetic word, prophetic wisdom from other people in my life. Uh, both, like, I've had people come to me and say, um, "Have a dream." This happened last year. Somebody had a dream, called me and said, "Look, I'm not a dream interpreter. This I, I just had a really weird dream about you." And it felt like it meant something, and I could be totally wrong. They were like really humble. They were like, I could be totally wrong. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord and then doing this thing. It just might be from the Lord. And this is what I think it means. And it was kind of – it was a challenging word. It was like you – like this is a habit of your leadership, and if you don't stop it, um, it's going gonna, it's, it's to totally shut you down. And that was at the time, if you guys remember, I was having like a lot of anxiety issues. And, and the word was actually at those anxiety issues and basically – um, trying to expose to me that they weren't anybody else's fault. They were my fault. It, there was something I was doing at the time that was causing all of it. And, you, and, and they didn't even know any of that. They didn't know anything about that. They just told me this thing, and they said, maybe it means something like this. And it was basically like, if you don't adjust this kind of mindset of this way that you're trying to engage in leadership, you're not going to be in leadership. It's going to take you out. But that's a word of challenge that says, like, change course. You better change course. God is with you. He's, he goes before you. Or cha totally change course. But Paul is receiving, and Paul is not receiving an encouraging word. <laughs> this is not an encouraging word. It's not an encouraging word about now. It's not an encouraging word about the future. Nor is he receiving a warning that demands that he change course. This is a warning about what is coming simultaneous to the reality that he should continue. It's a preparation word for suffering. And I just haven't received very many of those, but I think actually God wants to say that. I think he wants to say it to me more often than I've received from him. I think he wants me to maybe say it to others. He wants to, he wants to deliver that kind of wisdom, that kind of encouragement through me to others more frequently than I have. And I just, it makes me wonder if God regularly whispers this kind of word to us, but we don't have ears to hear it. I wonder if part of the reason we struggle to hear or ask for or accept this kind of word from the Lord for us or for others is because we listen for God's voice within the sounding board of our own desires. Have you heard, have you heard the phrase, uh, trust the desires of your heart? <laughs> <laughs> chase after your desires you deserve what you want go get what you want you get some like target knickknacks and stuff with the right now it's like the pallet wood and the, the, the stencil drawing and stuff on there chase the desires of your heart get, go after it I actually don't think that's all bad I actually would agree with it it depends on what desires it depends on what desires. What desires are you talking about? Which desires are we talking about? Because Paul, later in his life, sitting in jail, writing letters to some of these churches that he's done so much ministry with, he talks about having actually two sets of desires inside of you at war with each other. He says it in this way in Romans 7. He says, what I want to do, I don't, I, I just, I don't do it. But what I don't want to do, I just find myself, I keep doing it. But you wouldn't do things that you don't want to do. So what he's saying is like there's two sets of desires in me, and I want one of those sets of desires to triumph, but one of them keeps winning that I don't want to do. 
And the way he, he tries to like put language to that is that there, there, is a, there is a war raging within me between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. There's two sets of desires within me. There's two desires of my heart within me. There has been a new heart created within me, but man, that old heart of stone, it's still rocking around in there sometimes. And there, that thing's full of desires, desires of the flesh. And there's this war raging inside of me between these two sets of desires. And I just want to say, in consideration of the desires of the flesh, not the desires of the spirit, the, the desires for like righteous holiness, the kingdom, justice, mercy, love, but those desires of the flesh, I just want to uh, 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 propose this morning that if you spend any amount of time in the States, your, your, the desires of your flesh will be shaped to one degree or another by middle class values. And those archetype middle class values being safety, security, and comfort. And, and, and people might have varying degrees of that depending on like how much and, and, and what kind of communities you're a part of and how you've been shaped over time. But I just want to say there's all kinds of desires of the flesh. And people uh, have lifelong battles with different ones. Um, but if you, if you spend any – some of your desires of the flesh ex, that have been formed and shaped uh, to some degree by this country and its values – can be for, for the archetype values of safety, security, and comfort, these middle-class values. Just in case maybe there's like a little like lack of ownership or confusion, I did, um, I did come up with a middle-class test really quick that we could do together. Do you want to do it together? Maybe a little quick, a quick one, a quick one. I kind of pieced this together a little bit. We, uh, uh, we did one of these way back in the day. Brian did one of these. I've, I found a couple more that are a little bit more recent. Needed upgraded. It needed upgraded. Um, so it's just self-reflective. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but am I, am I middle class? Am I, am I being shaped by, to one degree or another by middle class values? Well, is your, is your first reaction in relational spaces or uh, commercial spaces um, uh, to consume and rarely to give or participate. It's just self-reflective. Just think about it for a minute. And if so, you, you might be, you may have been influenced by middle-class values. Have you bought a new cell phone before when your old one still works? I actually like to say, have you bought a new cell phone when your old one does not yet have a crack in the screen? Because if it doesn't, you're good. You're good. You're good. If you have, you might be middle class. Have you ever uh, been to a spa in your life once, ever? Any kind of spa, actually, any kind of spa. Do you have multiple duvet covers depending on the season? Do you know what a duvet cover is? Do you know what a duvet cover is? It's an important question. It's an important question. Do you know what a tea time is? Not tea, not liquid tea. Do you know what a tea time is? Some of us are good. Some of us are good. Have you ever bought insurance that was not required by law? And did that insurance give you peace of mind? Do you know what peace of mind is? <laughs> Have you judged a car to be too crappy? Have you judged a car to be too nice? Have you done both things in the same block of driving? 
Have you ever felt sorry for yourself or a deep, deep sense of sadness, and so you went shopping to make it better? And when you went shopping, it did make it better. Have you had that experience? Do you dread deep down in a visceral way the idea of going to Walmart, but you dream dreams of going to Target? You might be middle class. Might be. You might be. I do want to be clear here. I, I, being middle class, maybe people are like uncomfortable like trying to get out of some of those questions. I, I, I don't know why you would. I don't, I don't actually think it's morally wrong to be middle class, and I don't actually think some of those values of middle class are morally wrong. What, what, what the problem becomes is when those values, the will of God has to bend to those values. When those actually, those idols that are, are incendiary within kind of middle class life and values actually become the will of God and actually uh, start to co-opt the vision of the kingdom of God in the world. We tend to project middle class values into the will of God and receive the, the voice of God within the confines of those values. But it's just important to remember, always to remember, and, and, and to feel free to remember that God is not middle class. He is, he is rich who, who became poor for us, that we might become rich. And that with those riches, we might actually share with one another. That our needs might provide for others' needs. And, and when needed, theirs, their more might cover our need. That there would be equality. He is the God who is capable of glory, but he did, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he became what? He became nothing. He became a servant. More than a servant, he died. More than death, he submitted to a cross. I think God, I actually think God, God is not um, unconcerned with your safety and your comfort and your security, but he is proportionally concerned with your safety, security, and comfort in context of his overwhelming love for the poor and the lost and his, and his, his furious desire to include you in that love for the world. And therefore, there is just, there's just very little room for concern, for safety, comfort, and security. In the 1840s and 1850s, uh, the Hawaiian Islands were dealing with um, a slight increase in rates of leprosy. And they had a lot of theories around where that leprosy was coming from or, or, or how to curb it, but they, were, they started to get in the middle of what they felt like was a crisis. And in 1865, the Hawaiian legislature passed uh, a legal act to prevent the spread of legacy or legacy, leprosy. And what that legal act meant was that they could, they legally created a, a government-sanctioned detainment camp for anyone who contracted leprosy um, on an island, on the east shores of an island uh, in the Hawaiian Islands. And they ended up quarantining every single person in 1865 with leprosy to that government-sanctioned detainment camp. Um, a total of about 8,000 people lived there over the course of its existence. And at that time, there was a, a community of Catholic priests, missionary priests, um, in, the, in the Hawaiian Islands. 
And a, a, a priest named Father Damien actually went to his bishop and put in a request, a voluntary request, to be reassigned as a priest. Uh, uh, and he wanted his parish to be this detainment camp uh, um, of lepers on the east shores of an island in those Hawaiian islands. And they, after a lot of dialogue, not maybe quite dissimilar to this, friends, co-workers, family, his brother particularly, telling him, you know if you go, you're going to get leprosy. Why would you do that? Please don't do that. Uh, um, and urging him, pleading with him not to go. Please don't go. Why would you do this? Maybe even through the Spirit, urging him. God has told us, if you go, you will get leprosy. Please don't do this. Uh, and still, he would not be dissuaded, and those people had to make peace with that. And what I mean by make peace with that is, may the Lord's will be done. May the Lord's will be done. And Father Damien, Damien went to this place, and during, during his time there, he not only cared for the lepers who were there, but he also established leadership within the community to improve the state of living. He aided the village by teaching, painting houses, organizing farms, organizing the construction of chapels, roads, hospitals, churches, schools. He also personally dressed residents in the morning who could no longer dress themselves. Um, he redid people's bandages throughout the day. He dug people's graves. He built coffins uh, for the people who died. He ate food by hand with lepers. He shared pipes with them around the fire. He lived with the lepers as equals. He told the lepers that despite what the outside world thought of them, they were always precious in the eyes of God. This was his core life message to them. That despite what the outside world thought of them, they were always precious in the eyes of God. And he could not imagine a way to actually uh, say that to people without embodying it by becoming one of them. He couldn't imagine another way. After about 11 years of doing ministry there, he poured boiling, he, he accidentally spilled boiling water all over his arm and he didn't feel a thing and he realized he had leprosy. That he'd contracted le leprosy after serving those 11 years and uh, it was not long later, a few years later, that he died a leper's death. And all of his, you know, you could listen to that story and you could think, and even this story, and you could think all those friends and the family and the brother that said, don't go, this is going to happen to you. That as soon as it happens, isn't there room for those people to see, I told you so. I knew it. You should have listened to us. This could have been avoided. I knew it. Come on. You should have listened to us. Or for these elders and leaders and the people who knew Paul, the moment that he gets chained up and he gets arrested, for all of them to say, we knew it. He should have listened to us. We knew it. I told you so. Come on. This could have been prevented. But I think Father Damien and I think Paul, I think they're actually saying, we knew it too. I didn't disagree with you. I just didn't think it was a reason to say no to the Lord. I just don't think God was saying, don't go. I, was, I just think he was saying, here's what's coming ahead of you. Is God's will the safest place to be? Uh-uh. Is God's will the most comfortable place to be? No, it is not. Will we hold on to our desires, the desires of our flesh, for those things, for safety and for comfort? 
Will we hold on to them in such a way that we even like redefine or only listen to God when it's within those spaces? Will we hold on to those things and actually lose life itself? Even those things that you think you can hold on to, you can't. You lose them. You lose them. You lose everything. Or will we give up those desires of the flesh, resist, deny those desires of the flesh to gain something more, to gain something beyond us, to receive something that we actually can't grasp for or strive for? Give up the desires of our flesh and gain the king and his kingdom. You get Jesus. It's more than enough. It's not just enough. He's not just enough. He's more. He's more, more, more. It feels like we're in a... Uh, uh, this story doesn't just highlight the need to let go of our desires of, the, of safety and comfort, but our need to let loose our grip even on our relationships. Our, our relationships are a gift. Our friendships, our communities, the people we walk with in life are a gift. They're a blessing. And yet we cannot control them. We can't close our fist around them. And at the same time that we need to loosen our grip on our own desires of the flesh, at the same time we have to loosen our grips on the relationships that we have. I think another thing that this text exposes is that the community that is forged by mission. Paul is in relationship with all these people on the way to Jerusalem because of mission. Uh, they found each other through mission. They're in life with each other because of mission. And the depths of their relationship often are forged in the crucible and the confines of being engaged in the mission of God. And the community that he has with all these people on, his, on the way to Jerusalem is forged by mission. And at the same time, we're seeing that they are divinely dispersed by mission. That same mission that forged them together could very well tear them apart. The same spirit that calls us together may call us apart for the sake of a world that does not know him. This is, again, like the zealous pursuit of God. Who, who will leave. He will walk away from the 99 who are found in search of the one who is lost. And he's going to invite us to do the same. But those 99 that are found, I like them. We have, we have good barbecues. We play euchre together on Friday. I, I, do you not know what euchre is? Who knows what euchre is? Come on, nobody knows what euchre is? We've been getting dinner together for every week for five years. I know all the, all of our kids grew up together. That my kid, those are my kids' best friends and our best friends. And yet he's still asking. He's still running to go find the one that's lost. And he's asking us to come. The will of God does not bend to our relationships, but our relationships surrender to the will of God, which is obsessed with making dead things alive, bringing together... Uh, broken apart things in reconciliation, healing wounded things, and obsessed with finding that which is lost. And we are, no we are no stranger to this reality. This is not new. We've said goodbye for now and embraced relational distance with dozens, dozens of people who we've loved over the past. I was thinking this week about Jason and Katie Thompson. Uh, leaders who were like core, like founding uh, leaders uh, for this movement, uh, uh, led this movement in so many amazing ways um, for so long. And eventually their hearts were stirred uh, to Germany. And they 
uh, left us um, to Germany. And they took, they took uh, 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 some of our uh, best people with them who also felt that stir, that calling. It was hard to, to lose Ann Paths, hard to lose uh, Mike and V, uh, so many others who we've had to embrace relational distance with people. Uh, uh, I mean, some of you are here because of Jason and Katie. Um, Brooke and Dave Maturo, who are, who are off to San Francisco now. Um, Evie and Will Sekajipo, who are moving this summer. Uh, uh, I mean, again, some of these people, like the legacy of their ministry in our community just cannot be overstated. The St. Petersburg people, like, like there, was, there was a general call, like we have to, we have to, we have to reach, we want to be more present, have a bigger fo footprint in St. Petersburg and a general call in the community for people to move to St. Petersburg. And so many people answer that call and we miss now. We, we've had to embrace the, some relational distance with leaders we love, like the Everett's, Brad and Stefania and the Rodriguez's, Dan and Matt and Cassie. And I just think it's important to hear their names again, to remember their legacy of the ministry that they've had in the city and this community to celebrate what God continues to do today in and through that yes. And that's simultaneously it's important for us to, to still grieve the relational distance and how that feels for us. I miss them. We miss them. You miss them more than I do. But at the same time to celebrate the, that, what the relational distance means for the kingdom of God in the world. That we grieve this thing that hurts, but at the same time, we accept and embrace what it means. Because we're a community that said yes. And it just feels like we're in another intense season right now of dispersion and scattering. There's, there's more and more of our people right now. It feels like a heavy season of scattering. Thinking this week about Jake and Vanessa Power, who are moving uh, uh, later later this summer. Uh, to Senegal, and they've they've had a heart for a long time, dating all the way back to college for that for that country for Senegal, and um, just never felt like the, a, a full release to pursue that, and um, just just are in a season where there's there's been an open door, and they felt like an openness from the Spirit of God to to step into that, and they're going to be going to work at a school there in Senegal. Um, we've got obviously more time with them uh, before they go. But I don't, I don't want Jake and Vanessa Power to leave. I want to close my fist around those friendships. And, I, and it makes me like, like want to go into despair. Especially their, their kids are super fun. My goodness. I, they're, they're taking their kids too. And they're like beautiful, funny, hilarious kids. And uh, <laughs> Rob and Lindsay Beckenhauer are moving to Guam this summer. They've been in a, just an amazing gift to our community. And, uh, you know, Rob, is, Rob has been in military um, uh, most of his career, and that, that's, been, that's, a moving, that's a moving career. And so they step into our lives, and on the front end, you know, we're probably only going to have them a couple years. But I just kind of started to think, maybe we'll have them forever. Maybe we'll have them forever. And uh, I've just loved, you know, they've been such a, a gift. You know, I think our community has a high value for foster care and adoption. They've just been such a huge gift to that culture that we have. I just love seeing them driving around in their black school bus with their 27 kids. And, you know, and again, those kids are like amazing, beautiful, gifted uh, kids. And they've been such an asset to our community. And they, you know, they're, but they're, they've been reassigned and they're moving to Guam this summer. 
and I just want to close my fist, and I just want to be angry about it, and I want to sink into despair. And you know, Tim Wynn is moving to New York this summer in June, and uh, he, you know, he's he's a, a, a church planting trainer. It's what he's it's what he's done for so long, and he just kind of had this opportunity to open up with a church planting network in New York and discern that with his family and with some of us and. And has and has just really convinced that Jesus is uh, leading him into the space. That's where his, his family's in New York. It's going to get him closer to his family. It's going to be really good for him on a lot of different levels. And just so you know, uh, we're we, we're going to have him come next Sunday um, on the second to give kind of like a final to lead us again before he leaves to kind of give us like a final word before he leaves. But I'm tempted to close my fist around that friendship. And to just and to just you know tell these people don't go don't go it's going to be terrible if you leave us you know and and to and to and to and to make them weep and to break their hearts make it hard for them you know I just want to come on come on stay with us stay with us and I want to sink into despair when people leave and and sometimes when people leave because they're clearly called they're saying yes to them to to the leadership of Jesus in their lives. And when I close my, sometimes you can take it personally. You can, or, or the organ, like we, I, I can take it personally, the organization, like, like we weren't good enough or I wasn't good enough or else they would have stayed or something like that. These are the tricky, nasty things that can happen when we close our fist instead of saying yes and agreeing to what God is doing in lives of people. All of that is just bending the will of God to my preferred set of relationships. Instead of receiving people with an open hand and being so grateful to God for the people that I have in my life and then letting them go with an open hand because this is what we do. This is what we do. We're surrendered to the will of God, which actually isn't designed for my relational life. It's designed to go and make alive a dead world. We have to give up control over our relationships and if we do that we gain the king we gain we gain more of the king more of the kingdom you get jesus and he's more than enough he's more 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 than enough she is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose no fool if the worship team would come up I do just want to end with this, uh, this, this final word about just wrestling all week with the question of loss and gain, letting go and receiving. Give away your life and you'll receive it somehow. And this, this great tension, this great paradox that we live in constantly. And I couldn't help but think of the, the lines about uh, the, from G.K. Chesterton where he writes, the tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect as in every other, above all other thinkers who ever thought themselves tall. His pathos was natural, almost casual, and the Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. Yet Jesus never concealed his tears. But he did conceal something. And solemn supermen and imperial diplomats are proud of restraining their anger but jesus never restrained his anger he had no problem flipping tables but he restrained something he did restrain something and there was something that he hid from 
all men when he went up to a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied it was his joy. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the giant secret of the Christian. I think this, this story, you can't help when you read it, this story echoes Gethsemane, doesn't it? This is a, this is a Gethsemane moment for Paul. It's a Gethsemane moment for the early church. When, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sitting there in the anxiety of what's coming, knowing that he's right on the cusp of this, of this uh, journey to the cross. He's right on the cusp of, of all this, the, these things. And in the midst of that anxiety, he's just saying, is there any other way? There's got to be another way. There, I know there's another way. Come on. There's got to be another way. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And at the end of the day, there's not. And he comes to this moment where he just said, I give up. I give up. Not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. And I think the early church and Paul are having a Gethsemane moment. Is there's got to be another way? Is there any other way? Is there anyone else? Is there any other time? Is there any other strategy? Is there any other path? And at the end of the day, the answer is no. They could not be dissuaded. And what does it say? We gave, a, we gave up. We gave up. And we said, may the will of the Lord be done. May the will of the Lord be done. And I think it's important every time we think of Gethsemane, every time we engage that space on our own, when we feel like we're in the garden, we think of Jesus in the garden to always remember Hebrews 12 too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning at shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was set before him? Immense joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. unbelievable joy and this is what we learn over time this is what Annie's trying to say this is what this is what uh, uh, resurrection teaches that suffering actually to share in the sufferings of Christ actually ushers you into sharing in that joy and that suffering and joy somehow go hand in hand. On the backhand of suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus, in the will of Christ Jesus, there is immense joy. Have you been in that garden? Are you in that garden right now? Are you leading your people into that garden? Are you walking with them in that garden? The joy of the Lord cannot be manufactured. It cannot be contrived. It cannot be strived for. It cannot be created. It cannot be faked. It is simply something received within his divine will. God's will is not the safest place for you. It is not the most comfortable place for you. But you will find within it the most joy. As we come to the table this morning and respond together as a community. do want you to hold in you that Hebrews 12 2 for the joy set before him he endured the cross and as he invites us into carrying our own crosses bearing our own crosses 
when that sometimes means the death of our desires, the death of our dreams, sometimes even the separation of relationships that we hold dear, whenever we embrace hard things in the carrying of that cross, we also engage in the joy set before him. We inherit profound joy, unbelievable joy. And we inherit him. And he's more than enough. He's more, more, more than enough. So this morning, underground come. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. So this morning, underground, come and remember and receive the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. When you're ready, the elements given for you.